Hi everybody, Michael Mack here wishing you a great start into the new year 2024. I'm sure that this year will bring a lot of innovation and I'm excited to see which technologies and ideas will emerge. Here in my podcast, recorded at the Studio 78, each of my guests gave us an exciting look into the future. What will the world look like seven years from now? In this special episode, recap some of the insights of the guests we had in 2023. We listened to their exciting answers and um, are very excited about them. Here we go. The World Beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. Brought to you by Michelle Mack. Today, my guest is David Reinierson, Senior Software Programmer and Consultant at NASA. Hi there. Thanks for having me. You're currently working on mapping the moon. Tell us a little bit more about the moon to start with, please. What do we know about it? What are the most fascinating facts about it? I think the most fascinating thing about the moon is that we actually really don't know much about the moon. You know, the last folks who went there were in 1972. That was the last time man set foot on on the moon. Are there aliens out there? Do you believe in them? <laughs> Uh, I think I think this is the number one question I've gotten um, is where are the aliens? Do they tell you that? Um, they have not told me, so I cannot confirm or deny. You know, are there aliens out? Do I believe aliens are out there? Um, absolutely. Like, honestly, really, absolutely. It's a great waste of space otherwise, isn't it? Concerning space mapping and exploration, what will the world <laughs> look like in seven years? Will... We live somewhere in space or will we be still on earth what will be the biggest difference to our life today be seven years okay so that would be uh 2030 um i mean i don't think a, a lot's going to change uh, in terms of space mapping and the explore uh, i think the exploration will be a bit different because we will have gotten to the moon we love you know learned some things and and understood Uh, some of the nuances of living full-time in space and the moon in particular. Um, I mean, exploration is an extremely dangerous job. It can, uh, it's, it's going into the unknown, it's uncertainty, and that can mean, uh, you know, the ultimate consequence. But with that, I mean, there's learning something and seeing something that literally no one has ever seen before, has ever experienced before. Um, we are in my mind, a very a curious, uh, you know, creature where us humans. So I want that curiosity and hope that curiosity continues even seven years from now. I have the honor to have Clark Parson today with me, the Managing Director of the Internet Economy Foundation and the partner at iEconomy. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great, and it's, I'm really honored that you took the time as my guest in my new podcast, The World Beyond. Um, so I prepared some quick questions for you, um, which I'll ask you to answer as short as possible. Are you ready? I'm ready. Excellent. Well, you are, among many other exciting topics, also an expert on entertainment. Which forms of entertainment do you enjoy most in your spare time? Oh, it would have to be music. That was my first love. I was in a garage band, and my first job, I was a rock critic in Nashville, Tennessee. That sounds exciting. Uh, what was your first VR experience? You know, it might have been a VR coaster with you guys. I, I think that was the first one where I really felt like somebody put it all together. You're one of the best connected Americans in Germany. Who is the most famous person in your address book? Well, here I have to actually 
um, reveal a little family uh, history. Actually, my wife used to work for the federal president of Germany. She ran his office. So um, Germans would say, I can say you to him, uh, to one of the former presidents. Excellent. Let's look together into the future. Seven years from now, what will our world look like in terms of entertainment, on-the-go, AI and VR? Boy, I think if I could just maybe say one word, it'll probably be personalized. I think, you know, the era is coming in which you're going to be able to ask an AI to create a film for someone in your family you love, uh, in which your child for their birthday will be the star of the film and it'll be a story about them. So let's face it, you know, once we got our iPhones, we all wanted to take really, really good selfies. It's always about us, isn't it? So ultimately, a lot of this technology is going to be put in service of creativity that's based even more around us than it could have been before. So I think, you know, personalized experiences, personalized entertainment products um, that are custom made on the fly by an AI in which you ask for it and 20 seconds later you have it, I think is going to be extraordinary. And we have not even begun to dream of the products and services that are going to be possible in seven years. My guest is Amy Jupiter, worked for Walt Disney Imagineers for many years, where she created exciting next-level immersive experiences and attractions for theme parks, for which she won several prestigious awards. Hello, how are you? It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. When is technology or when is digital asset a help to you and when is it destroying the imagination? Where is that sharp line for you? Where would you say like yes to digital media and where would you say no? So I like to think of heads down behavior and heads up behavior. Um, and I choose when I'm with other people not to be antisocial. I think that being polite and being respectful to people around you, not banging into them with your head is a really, you know, head butting is bad. I think that when your head is up, I think that if you want to take a selfie with something that doesn't exist behind you, I think that's kind of fun. I think that being able to gather somebody around you and in a group play a, you know, a game while you're standing there in the middle of a place, I think that could be fine. But I think heads down behavior, always having somebody having to look at their screen to know where they are or what their next attraction is, I think is kind of destructive. My theme is not anxiety. I do not like the theme of anxiety or anticipation very much. How do you think the future of immersive experience will look like in seven years from now? I think the ones where we get to gather together to play, I think the ones that are transporting in that we get to play in imaginary worlds that are not limited to projection on a wall, I love the idea of translucent surfaces, of, of gesture uh, controlled, where you're using your body to paint on these transparent surfaces that we get to wander through them together. So I'm hoping that the price point or the complexity of these immersive experiences are not so limited by one-trick ponies that we figure out a way to get enough people in them and through them 
to make them compelling, that we reimagine aquariums, that we reimagine zoos, that we reimagine museums, and that we take underutilized capacity places that exist already and transform them into things that help us learn about the world around us and transport our young people to be able to imagine a better future for themselves and for our planet. And that we do that through immersive experiences and play in our parks with these fantasy worlds and that it's not just limited to, that they're unlimited worlds we can go to, including our own. Today, I'm very excited to be joined in person here at Studio 78 at Europa Park by no one other than Roni Abelwitz. Thank you, Michael. It's exciting to be here, and it's a, it's a beautiful park, and happy to be on your podcast. You've been working on medical robots. <laughs> You've been talking about like saving people's life, and then you come up with a concept of a story of, of our blue, and you think about an AI um glasses i mean if i'm looking at my history i mean we come from roller coaster building and it's a, it's a bit of obvious to do a theme park but i mean how did you come from a big medical into and in, in, into like telling stories which change the world and putting up a technology which haven't been there i'll try to connect the thread so at mako my my investors discouraged my original use of robotics which is to put it in the brain and the mako robot just for people who are listening You would see on a big screen a three-dimensional animation of where you were inside the body. So you can do things minimally invasively using like this three-dimensional fly-by-wire system. We would create volumetric images. It was really, really cool. And then we had haptics, which is this very high-resolution digital touch. So as you moved your instrument, you'd feel like glass is like invisible glass just appeared and pushed you in the right way and wouldn't let you go in the wrong way. So the, the robot became this like use of the force, like from Star Wars, it just kind of guided you to do the procedure right to the point where you can close your eyes, you could be a 10 year old kid, you would still have the same outcome. Uh, and we had an AI inside it that was a blend of the techniques of some of the best surgeons in the world. Uh, so as we were doing makeup, the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how can we take the three dimensional models off the monitor and have them just appear in space like we saw in all these movies? So I had a friend from Caltech who was a theoretical physicist, and we started arguing about it. And he was talking about the optics, and I was talking about the brain. And it was like this joke about it's optics, it's the brain. And we're like, what if you put the two together? Is there some new clever way to solve what turned out to be an incredibly difficult problem? Because what I stumbled into is that spatial computing, augmented reality, virtual reality is a brain-computer interface. It's not actually a computer computer. It's much more of a medical device, a med tech, to get it right. Because the brain and the eye are so sensitive. There's so many things you need to tune together. So that's where the biomedical background kind of led me to that. But also the other part of my brain, the creative part, is flying around thinking about movies and stuff. And those two parts were connecting on this idea. Um, which innovations and changes do you predict we will see in the creative technological field in seven years? In seven years, I think we'll see computing intelligence blended with sensors in ways that we feel a organic realism to new media experiences. We're getting closer to that, but we know they're synthetic. And I think there's a point where we leave the uncanny valley and we really feel like we have entered from a touch and smell and taste and sensing level and a visual level. Uh, we can conjure amazing experiences that change how we feel in dramatic ways and can do positive things. I feel like that's going to come to a really wonderful 
not a peak, but a, a very good place, just like a, where we cross many lines of what I call neurologic reality, where your brain is just believing it completely. Today I'm joined in person here at Studio 78 at Europa Park by a truly special guest and dear friend of mine, Sir Richard Taylor. Thank you, Michael. It's lovely to be here. Let me just um, reflect a little bit because you've been coming over from New Zealand, so we were maximizing our time together and there was a, a late night last night and we were talking about the center of, of detail and the center of uh, all what will it really do and you and your company and uh, here at Europa Park. And you were talking about the center of love. What I said to Michael last night, and it's a little used word these days. People are anxious or embarrassed or steer clear of using the word love. But love must be at the heart of the creative process. Without love at the heart, the audience can see it. Somehow the world in which you're inviting them into, whether that be film, TV, location-based experiences, or a theme park, in some way feels two-dimensional and superficial. I feel very strongly that it is beholden on people like Michael and his family, and people like ourselves, practitioners of the creative process, where we are inviting people into our worlds to approach every task with a sense of unabashed enthusiasm and unfiltered love. And in turn, the audience are aware of it, and even if they wouldn't label it, and even if they chose to label it, may not speak it out loud, but I genuinely believe that when people come to Europa Park... And in a certain degree, when people watch the films that we're fortunate to work on, they can sense the love of conviction to the craft, to the art, to the storytelling, to the connection that exudes through every pore of every person within the park, every crack in the pavement, every piece of theming in the experience. And uh, that, to me, is the reason to celebrate in what we do. Because to do anything less is to be wasting one's time, and you might as well just not get up in the morning. How will the world look like in seven years from now? And are you afraid of artificial intelligence? I think the world will look quite a bit different. Not visually, the world won't look visually, but how we interface with the world will look different. I think there are reasons to be very concerned about some forms of AI, the monolithic AI of uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. The hell that certain corporations and companies are building is concerning. But there are many, many forms of AI that will only create a much greater, better world We're already seeing cancers that may have taken dozens of years for armies of research scientists to cure, find a cure for being run through an AI algorithm and finding uh, solutions in a matter of months. We shouldn't demonize the concept of what AI can be in the world because there are so many benefits of certain AI for society and for the people of the world. It's the manner in which certain AI is used and uh, 
and harvest knowledge and that we need to be a little cautious of. I am not an expert on this area of questioning, but from my relatively passive perspective, I think we've got to keep the highest level of ethics at the forefront. We've got to keep people at the centre of the use of AI, and we've got to make sure that uh, the individual's creativity is never replaced entirely or partially with uh, AI when we're originating creative content and ideas. Today I'm joined here in person at Studio 78 at Europa Park by a very unique guest, Marte Riematz. Marte Riematz is the brilliant CEO and founder of the innovative and revolutionary car company Riematz Automobili. Thank you so much for the invitation, Michael. It's uh, really great to be here. When actually your first Nevera was seen the the daylight, was it in like... No, we, we showed the Nevera. So my first car that we built, so I started with a BMW, but my goal was to develop my own car. And the first car that I built was the uh, Concept One. Uh, so at that time, when we showed the car at the Frankfurt Auto Show in 2011, we were a company of eight people. And most of the guys I just convinced to give up their job to join me, like a 20-year-old guy who wants to make a car, who has some Arab investors and stuff like that. But the investors never really paid the money that they promised me to. And we, like, I, I didn't pay the guys the salary. I didn't pay my suppliers. That was a really, really tough time. So, anyways, this was the first time in 2011 that I showed the first car, the Concept One, but that wasn't really proper car. We didn't know really what we were doing. We didn't have the money to do it. So it wasn't a proper car. And then in 2018, we showed the C2, which was like a code name uh, until we showed the proper Nevera. So th that was, let's say, the first prototype of, of the Nevera in Geneva 2018. And then in 2021, we showed the Nevera and we started to deliver it in 22. What do you think the world of cars or more particular transportation will look like in seven years? Seven years, okay. It's actually not such a big time frame for, for car companies because the development cycles are very long. So let's say we just signed a contract with a big German car company. We are working on the project for the last two years and it will start production in 26 and the contract goes until 2045. Uh, so that's how long contracts are in the auto industry. It's, it's a very long time. So it's quite predictable what will happen in 2030, let's say, today. So I would say that by that time, the majority of new sold cars in uh, the developed world will be electric. But I think the bigger change, what I was talking about, about not having ownership of cars and cars driving you around, you will have already in the most major cities of this world, you will have robo-taxi services where it becomes quite unnecessary to own your own car. So you will get into a car that has no driver and the car will drive you where you need to go within the city. It will not probably still drive you from Berlin to Munich, but within Berlin, it will drive you around. And I think that many young people will make the choice to not have a driver's license, to never have a driver's license, and to not have the second biggest investment in their life, which is a car. To not do that, to not have that as, as an asset and as a burden to them financially and everything else. So I think that's when the revolution will really start. Like electric cars will become a you know, normality and like majority of new cars will be electric. But don't forget there is over a billion cars on the road today in the world and there is 100 million new cars being made. So even if tomorrow all cars will be electric, the new ones, it will still take at least 10 years to replace the whole fleet. 
my guest is today, Georg Dietz. Nice to be here. Thank you. Let me introduce Georg quickly to you. He's considered to be one of the most brilliant minds in Germany. He's a philosopher, a journalist, a columnist, and an author. What was your first drew into wanting to become a philosopher? Um, maybe if I'm a son of a pastor, so I was always um, questioning, I guess, Christian uh, understanding of the world. Um, I think it was when I was I don't know, 10 or 11 that I understood that um, man constructed the image of God and not the other way around. So I wanted to understand how actually this image of um, God became so powerful and then in the other way around how the image of man is created and maybe used, abused, distorted. So philosophy was always a kind of tool for uh, rectifying that pastoral ancestry. We look into the world beyond. Um, power to the people is your um, topic and subject. How can we reinvent democracy through technology? And what would be your outlook into the future? Seven years from now, what will our democracy look like? There will be cities that use and harness the power of data for their citizens directly to communicate differently, to support them differently, to be um, responsive differently. There will be uh, nation states which regulate in some way the way the tech companies are taxed. I think that's uh, an important function for nation states. There will be citizen councils, citizen assemblies on a, on a local level and on a European level that um, form, with the support of technology, bodies that, that can be much more um, inclusive and just. And uh, there will be legislation on the EU level, maybe bigger than that, that regulates um, and has broken apart uh, the big tech monopolists. Um, I think it's a reclaiming of the techno-industrial um, space by different forms of government on a local level, national level and supranational level um, that uh, enables democracy to thrive in a technological age and with the technological means that are at our hands. Today, my guest is Athena Demas, futurist, PX advisor, keynote speaker, as well as CEO and co-founder of Big Rock Creative, a multi-award winning XR experience company. Hello, thank you. Wonderful to be here. On Instagram, you describe yourself as a wanderer, traveler and experiencer. What's the best place to live in the world to you? Oh my Lord, that is quite the question. I do love wandering, and that's why I live as a nomad. I don't have a home base that I'm constantly going back to. I've had this lifestyle for the last five years, and I've really enjoyed it because I've been able to explore as many different places as I possibly can, and I can do it all as part of my business, as part of Big Rock Creative. I go to conferences, and I meet amazing people, and I get to speak and share ideas, and then stay there until it's time to go to the next place, to go to the next conference, to speak on the next panel and share ideas and meet wonderful people. Concerning your area of expertise, how do you predict the world will have changed seven years from now? Will we all be living our lives largely in VR? I think we will have figured out 
the digital physical balance. Some of us will be too far in the digital. Some of us will be, you know, steadfast into the physical, but we will have created an industry balance where everything is hybridized. From the theme park point of view, you have already jumped into the virtual spaces, adding them to some of your rides, but you're only connecting to the people that are actually physically at your park. And there's no reason why those rides couldn't exist digitally as well and even hybridized so the people at the park could see the people that were in the virtual space and vice versa. You're limited to the number of people you can have come through your park in any given day, but we're not limited in the digital space. It's mainly rendering and server size, which is getting better exponentially uh, day by day, especially when we get into quantum computing. And that would be a whole other conversation that we don't have time for, but it's super fascinating. I think that we are going to find this balance. The digital world is going to get completely integrated into our physical space. Our physical world is going to get integrated into the digital space. And together, it is just one world. Today, our guest is Katharina Schüler. Welcome, Katharina. Hello, Michael. I'm happy to be here. All data, as you just were saying, can be misused. Would it then not be safer for the broad public to not provide the masses with access to big data? And does everybody need to know the truth? Does everybody want to know the truth? That's how I would like to reframe your question. I sometimes think about that because I'm really an advocate for data literacy and AI literacy. That means I often say and write we should teach data literacy already in primary school. Um, but sometimes I ask myself, does really everybody want to really understand how data analysis works, how statistics work, what can data can tell us and what not? Because, of course, and it makes it harder maybe some, sometimes to believe what you believe or you have to question your beliefs and your experiences when you really start questioning data critically. So... The question is, should we provide everyone with access to data and the tools to analyze data? Well, maybe yes, but maybe we need something like a driver's license for data. So it's the same question as if to ask, should everyone be allowed to drive a car or to use um, private personal mobility? Yes, but only after they have proven that they are able to do that, that they have proven that they don't misuse the tools, that they don't misuse the methods. In seven years from now, what will our world be look like in terms of data, AI and facts? I think data and AI will do a lot of jobs that at the moment take a lot of time, um, that are boring, that are repetitive, that don't require thinking and don't require creativity. But this can be a huge chance because we, you know, as human beings, we have one asset and that's gut feeling. We as human beings, we can learn from one or two observations. We enter a room and immediately feel, okay, people are friendly or not. I am safe here or I am not. And this is something that AI cannot do. And I think in seven years, we will understand what it truly means when we say machines will tell us more about what humanity really is. And I hope that this will be our guiding principle in seven years from now. Today, my wonderful guest is Daniel Lamar. 
Daniel is the executive vice president of the board of Cirque du Soleil, but he's also a creative leader. I'm very excited to have you here and talk to you about the future of live entertainment. Thanks for coming, Daniel. Thank you, Michael. It's an honor for me to have the opportunity to chat with you. When you look into life entertainment as general, I mean, we all do face the same problem a little bit, that the fast-paced internet um, is so quickly trends uh, um, within a day and the other. Um, what do you think is the base for your visitors to go into a two, three-hour venue? Do you still think that they have the patience in the future to sit still for two or three hours? Yeah, yeah, they do. But that's our challenge, because our challenge is not only to keep them in the big top or in the theater, but it's to keep them at the forefront of their seats. We want them to have emotion. We want them to be scared. We want them to, you know, be excited. And that's what we have to do. So we have to have a pacing. And let me insist on that. The pacing of a show is very, very important. And when we do uh, what we call in our lingo the acrobatic skeleton, we have to make sure that there will be a lot of different act that will bring you through a lot of different, to use your terminology, Michael, we also have roller coaster. But roller coasters are true emotions that people have. So we have to make sure that there is a lot of, you know, acts that are highly performance, other that are smoother, other that are more emotional. So we have to make sure that the pacing of the show will keep our spectator very nervous and excited and emotional about what they see. What will the world look like in seven years' time regarding your area of expertise, Daniel? Will we still enjoying stage shows in the way we are today? Definitely, uh, because, uh, you know, I still believe that people will be looking for human, you know, performance in seven years from now. But I have to think that there will be much more new technologies and there are some effects that we're using an immersive experience that will be embedded in live shows. The other thing is uh, we have to be open to, uh, you know, what's going to happen with robot. Are we going to have robot in our shows in the future? I don't discard that. So I, I guess right now we're evaluating all the technologies available and see which one uh, will enhance the content of our shows. So I would say, as you said, and I agree with you, live entertainment is there forever but the content will become more and more sophisticated, even if at the art of it, human performance will remain. Today, my very exciting guest is Christian Dawson. He's a member of the board of director at the Internet Infrastructure Coalition, co-founder and executive partner at OpenEye, and one of the seven main key holders to the Internet worldwide. Michael, it's such a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Before I start with my quick four questions for you, I was um, um, hearing from my colleagues you had problems with the internet. That's funny. I did. It's funny because that's my job is to make sure the internet uh, stays up and running. But my home router went down today. What is your favorite hobby currently? I have been playing chess with my son. I got him a chess set for his 16th birthday. A night owl or an early bird? Oh, am I a night owl or an early bird? I am early to bed, early to rise. It's a little boring. What's a common misconception about the internet? 
because we use terms like World Wide Web and like the cloud, people don't understand that it is real people working in real places, that it's about the people, that it's about the jobs. They think of it as something ethereal. If you had one opportunity to travel in time, will you go into the future or the past? Oh, um, I want to see what's coming next. I'm always interested in new technology. I'm part of the future. What will the world look like in seven years' time regarding your area of expertise, Christian? Will we still be using the internet in the way we do today? Great question. I don't think we'll be using the internet the same way that we're using it today. Voice commands are getting better. Their devices continue to get smaller. Um, we still want information and entertainment at our fingertips. But the idea that we're going to continue to do it on like, I'm on my laptop right now. I may not be using a laptop in seven years. Um, I may not be using a keyboard as much. I may not be using email as much especially because voice commands and devices are going to be so much better. It's going to be so much easier talking to your communicator to do the things that you want to do, to have the automated AI processes to get things done. So I think there's a lot of ease of use that's coming. My hope is that it's not driven by a small number of companies, um, but there's a lot of innovation driven by small um, businesses, in which case we're going to have a lot more choice as well. Niels Wallny was the head of digital business and customer experience at Audi before co-founding the revolutionary company Holoride. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on your podcast today. Give a little bit of a glimpse for our listeners. What exactly are you doing? I mean, I obviously do know what you do, but um, so you, you put VR glasses on the backseat of a car. Or what is the mission of um, Holoride and what are you actually providing to guests? Yeah, so we started um, our journey already eight years ago when my two co-founders and I were still at the German car manufacturer Audi and we were looking at um, the way passengers do spend time in cars and what we discovered is for many backseat passengers um, transit time feels like wasted time and we wanted to come up with a specific offering that is unique to the car and incorporating the way how it moves and where it moves and then we started um, experimenting with real-time car data like acceleration braking steering angle uh, wheel ticks gps position and all this real-time data you have available in the car and um, have built uh, very early prototypes and algorithms that are processing this data in real time and syncing it with the content being displayed in a VR goggle back then. So it was our first prototype was still the DK1 from Oculus. We had a PC in the trunk. Everything was hardwired to the, to the central computing entity of the car to get or extract the data. And um, our goal was really um, the purpose of making transit time count so turning dull car rides into exciting ones and um, this technology evolved so we spun out of audi to make this technology available to um, any car manufacturer in the world and to the content creators um, and, and we wanted to provide the tech for it and then we started the company We spun out end of 2018, operations started early 2019, and shortly after we met, um, and we also had the ambition to create a platform that um, caters to passengers, to riders and cars uh, with European origin, because the next computing wave just started with spatial computing, and um, I 
clearly don't see any reason why Europe shouldn't be at the forefront of this movement. Seven years from now, where <laughs> will it be in terms of technology and mobility? You will have experienced vehicles where you definitely jump into a vehicle to experience something instead of just getting from A to B. I'm pretty sure um, you'll you'll have the theme park on your fingertips um, in, in seven years, at least in, in some regions. Um, for some use cases, you'll see this. Seven years, I think, is a, is a good time frame. Today, my very exciting guest is Mike Zuckery. He's a highly sought-after advisor for industry-leading theme parks and location-based experiences. He was most recently head of Disney's location-based experience division. I'm thrilled to have you here and talk to you. Thanks for coming, Mike. It's my pleasure, Michael. I love your podcast, and I'm delighted to be part of it. Let's talk a little bit about cinemas. Um, I mean, you're an expert in the industry. You've been working for so many companies. Do you see home entertainment more of a given, safe bet, or do you think they need to be able to compete with location-based entertainment options? Well, as a result of both the pandemic and the rise of streaming services, more viewing is taking place at home than, than before. Cinemas are having a good year, but they're still about 20% lower in terms of box office than pre-pandemic levels, and even more when you adjust for inflation. Cinemas need to innovate to draw people in, and cinema going is currently dominated by younger audiences who go because they want to go out with their friends and family. I think we saw something incredible just that the horror film Five Nights at Freddy's which is based on a nine-year-old video game, grossed $130 million this weekend, but it was also available day and date on Universal Streaming Service. So many people watched it at home, but millions of people also paid to see it in theaters because they wanted to see it on a big screen with friends and with a crowd. So there's really still an opportunity for both in the market. What will be the world look like in seven years' time regarding location-based experiences? Will we still enjoy these attractions the same way that we are doing it today? Well, many types of attractions, interestingly enough, have not changed much in the past 50 years. For example, theme parks have gotten more advanced, but the experience is similar in principle to what it was when I was a kid. I just mentioned traditional entertainment like bowling and mini golf and bingo, and all of these have been reinvented with new attractions that are essentially updates on these classic games. So I think we will still go out with family and friends like we do today, but there will be new categories, just as we have seen with uh, escape rooms or immersive art experiences that have launched around the world over the past decade. It's a very exciting time to be in this business. Today, my very exciting guest is Christy Collins. Hello, thank you for having me with you today. So I'm very lousy, as you can assume, being a, a man going shopping. I, I, it goes as far that I know Zalando, which is quite well known in, in Germany. So just give me practical examples. I, I type in, I want to get blue shoes, and uh, your AI gives me white shoes because they know that it might look better on me. Or what exactly is the software doing? No, so um, what I would say is that we try to understand what your intent is at the very first click. So if you start to type in blue shoes, we're going to try to recognize that you're looking for blue shoes before you finish filling out the word shoes. And then we're going to present you with blue shoes. And maybe you've been known 
to us before and you always buy shoes that are Adidas, um, then we're going to start presenting you with that brand of shoe. And then as you move through your buying process, you may say, hey, I want to now look at shirts. Well, we know from your history that you were just looking at blue shirt shoes. Maybe you want a shirt that matches those blue shoes. So maybe we present you with a white shirt that has a blue emblem on it or a blue shirt that matches the blue shoes. We're just trying to recognize the intent that you have for your purchase by how close products are to each other. What will the world look like in seven years' time regarding online shopping, marketing, and artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, seven years, it's, it's such a long time in this industry. I look at just what's happened in a six-month period, uh, and I see so much activity taking place, and the results are just incredible. ChatGPT 3.5 to 4, um, this progression was just a, a real leap, and that just took place in six months. What we can say for sure is companies that are slow to adopt AI in some way will be left behind, whether they're a large company or a small company. We have to use AI to automate our repetitive task, provide the personalized recommendations as we talked about earlier, and to make those data-driven decisions with speed and accuracy. In seven years for online shopping, I can't imagine that the search bar would continue to exist in such a prevalent way. However, checks still exist in the U.S. and people still write checks. So I think uh, in some way we have to still serve people who um, really haven't moved beyond that way of doing things. I do believe people will be using more image and voice search. Um, be automatically presented with options based on their personal online identity. And then we have the emotions of an individual at a given point in time that can come into play. So how do emotions influence your buying engagement and your activity? Seven years seems like a long time, but in fact, it's going to be really fast. It's going to be personalized, but even more so than it is today, especially in terms of predictability. Today, my very exciting guest is no one other than Cassie Hackel. Cassie is a renewed tech futurist and highly thought-after expert in the metaverse. Among others, she was recently listed as one of the Forbes 100 Most Powerful Women. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here. Thank you for joining me today, Cassie. Well, I am thrilled to be here. Why do we need more women, especially in tech, computing and gaming? In general, I think in technology, technology is supposed to be created for everyone. Right? Technology is supposed to be for everyone. So when you're designing these systems, when you're designing these products, whether it's software, hardware, you have to think about who's using them. right? And a big percentage of the people that are using them are probably going to be women or the decision makers at home might be women. Even gamers, um, the percentage of female of women that describe themselves as gamers is increasing every day. So when you think about that, I think when you're designing these sorts of things, you have to think about all the different people that might be come, come in, in contact with this technology, not just one type of person. So I think that's important. I remember with some of the headsets, some of the devices, uh, friends of mine were like, you know, does it fit my hair or can I wear makeup? Or like, there's all these questions that maybe the people that were designing these were not thinking about, right? So I think as we evolve and continue to evolve with technology, things will continue to evolve. And I think in the gaming space, we need definitely more women 
because it's been a space that's been dominated by men. And I think women are able to create amazing games and amazing experiences that cater to a broader audience. It doesn't only have to be female. But when I look at my girls, I've got three children, two girls and one boy. They both equally play different games, you know, and I want to make sure that there's safe spaces for all of them. So, so yeah, like I, I think that there is a motivation, especially as a parent of Gen Alpha children, to create more spaces that are safe, right? So now you intrigued me. What are your kids playing, actually? Is it, does it differ <laughs> between boys and girls? What are the games you should play uh, nowadays? I mean, they definitely play Roblox. That's a big hit. And then the new Lego Fortnite collaboration, because it is rated for everyone, right? I think it's a great place to play with your kids. As always, my last question is, what will the world look like in seven years' time regarding our areas of expertise? Uh, seven years? I mean, we'll have, some of us might have moved from mobile phones to a different device. That remains to be seen. Um, I mean, Generation Alpha in seven years, my daughter will be 2021. Um, she'll be working. So it'll be a different generation. Uh, in about 10 years, uh, you know, at, by 2030, I believe 10% of the workforce is going to be Gen Alpha. So I think it's going to be a very interesting time and it'll be very, very different. So we'll see. So I hope you like my recap of the year 23 and um, I would promise you to have uh, ongoing and interesting guests in my new episode. So next week there will be out a fresh new podcast with a new guest. Michelle Mack presents The World Beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. A Mac One production.